Hi everyone and welcome to Heroes and Howlers and the Rest is History. I'm Mikey Robbins. I'm a bit of a history nerd, but my mate Paul Wilson. Hi, everybody. Paul's a proper historian, all the way from Oxford. Thanks, Mikey. Okay, folks, so here's the show. It's about the unsung heroes, the bizarre twists of fate, those weird bits of history that have surreptitiously changed the course of mankind. Yeah, actually, mate, it's also about the cock ups. (laughs) Those howlers, the moments of madness, they're sometimes tragic, sometimes comical, that have made the world what it is today. Okay, folks, welcome to the show. It's extra helpings time for Series 6, Episodes 1 to 3. But before we start, Mikey, you've got something you wanted to add from the April Fool's episode. Yes, mate, we've got to clear something up. It's about Tom Thumb. Because remember how an April Fool's joke gets mentioned in a Tom Thumb book? So people will say, well, who is Tom Thumb? Okay, there's a grave in Lincolnshire just next to the font of the main chapel in the Holy Trinity Church. And it's inscribed, T. Thumb aged 101, died 1620. Right. And the grave measures only 40 centimetres long. Ah, so he's a real person. Well, no, mate. (laughs) Actually, Tom Thumb is a centuries-old character from English folklore. Look, he first appears written down in satirical pamphlets dating back two decades before this. You've got William Faulkner's 1579, Heskin's Parliament Repealed. That's a fun read, that one. (laughs) And Tom Nash's Pierce Penniless, His Supplication to the Devil. Right. He also gets a mention in Reginald Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft in 1584. Mm. He is portrayed as a just one of these supernatural creatures and spirits used by servant maids as a way to frighten young children into behaving properly. Oh, yes, that's how I remember him from the nursery stories I was read as a child. But he gets his own story for the first time in 1621 with Richard Johnson's The History of Tom Thumb. Right. Where old Thomas of the Mountain... A ploughman and a member of King Arthur's council moans he wants a son and doesn't care if the boy is no bigger than his thumb. Enter Merlin, and three months later, his wife gives birth to Tom Thumb, a mischievous tiny child with a few magic tricks. And look, his behaviour is so bad, for want of a better term, little Tom Thumb is homeschooled. (laughs) And then he gets involved in a few buttock-related adventures. He falls into pudding batter and is almost about to be eaten by a tinker, only to be alerted to his predicament when the tinker farts. He's then swallowed by a cow and pops out alive from a cow turd. He's kidnapped by a raven, eaten by a giant, and then vomited out into the sea where he is once again eaten, this time by a fish. The fish is caught and presented to King Arthur, where out pops Tom and his adventures continue. This is all about Tom Thumb. I've never heard of those stories before. And it is still considered to be the first fairy tale printed in the English language which only goes to show that fairy tales were pretty wild centuries ago. So any parent that's complaining these days about the day my bum went psycho needs to go (laughs) back a couple of centuries. Anyway, by 1686, Tom has crossed the Atlantic, most probably in verse form, and here we have the most wonderfully overtitled poem of all time. Just bear with me. (laughs) Go on. Tom Thumb, his life and death, wherein is declared many marvellous acts of manhood, full of wonder and strange merriments, which little lived in King Arthur's time, and was famous in the court of Great Britain. That's the title. That's the title. (laughs) By 1731, Henry Fielding, who you'd know of, he's written a play about Tom, and once again he's swallowed by a cow. But this time he actually reappears as a ghost. Now, the story we know today, that sort of turns up around about the middle of the 18th century, but Uh. predominantly Charlotte May Yong in 1856, she she gets rid of all the poo stuff, (laughs) and writes a version where Tom no longer plays pranks, 
turns his back on Fairyland, and this Charlotte May, she now has young Tom declaring himself an honourable Christian. That's a typical Victorian. But that doesn't actually get us any closer to who Tom Thumb really was, does it? Well, back to that grave in Lincolnshire. Look, it's hard to say exactly who this Tom Thumb is, but local legend says it actually belonged to a small person who worked as a performer under the stage name of Tom Thumb. Now, that's the local legend in Lincolnshire. But there is one thing that is true. There's a famous performer from the 19th century. His, his real name was Charles Stratton. He was a small person. But he used to perform with P.T. Barnum mm. under the name of General Tom Thumb. And with P.T. Barnum, he toured all over the world, even coming to Australia. Now, that brings us on to the first episode of Season 6, where Paul took us to the Klondike Gold Rush. But you've got some more stuff around that, that city you were talking about. That's right. We were up in the Yukon, and we had a few uh, questions on Twitter about Dawson City. Could we tell them a little bit more and just what life was like there during that gold rush? Now, the interesting thing about Dawson City, Mikey, it's on the confluence where the Klondike meets the Yukon, which means, of course, it's in Canada, not in Alaska. And that's important because it's actually very different to the US towns nearby, places like Skagway at the time, which were infamous for their criminal underworld. In fact, John Muir, who invented the first ever national park, he wrote of Skagway that it was a nest of ants taken into a strange country and stirred up by a stick. Not the sort of place you want to take your grandmother on holiday. But in Canada, because of course, you know, with the Mounties, things are actually very different. Now, Dawson City gets its name from George Dawson, the director of the Canadian Geographical Survey. But for the first few decades of its life, it's little more than a couple of shacks. But things pick up as more traders and prospectors move into the whole Yukon region. And throughout this gold rush period, the guy in charge of the city is a guy called Colonel Sam Steele. He's part of the Canadian Mounties and he's famed for his firm discipline and what the locals called the Blue Laws. And the way Sam Steele worked was, unlike in America, he allowed gambling and prostitution, but he would never let it get any worse. There was no real criminals, there was no robbery, and in fact the murder rates for a gold rush were very, very low. So this meant that when Dawson took off, when it started to thrive, it became quite an incredible place. Now, Front Street, which is the main street, the main drag, if you like, it was lined end to end with these grand facades, Parisian style. They've got mirrors, plate glass in all the windows. In 1898, it's actually one of the first cities in Canada to get the electric lights. They build this elaborate opera house, which, which reminded me of your Gregor McGregor story about always putting an opera house in a new colony. It's the ultimate status symbol for a new city. That's right. And with it, of course, came these great celebrity acts touring from the East Coast. They say that the wealthiest dance hall girls, there's one in particular, Daisy Devara, they would have belts made of gold dollar coins. And because most of the payments in the bars and the saloons were made with gold dust, there was so much accidentally spilt, you could profit by being the floor sweeper. Nice work if you can get it. And Mikey, we talked about the millions of dollars that were found in gold, and it does sound like they really did have a bit of a lavish lifestyle. We've got all sorts of stories of prospectors drinking champagne at $2,000 a bottle. And my favourite is a guy called Jimmy McMahon, who once spent over 28,000 Canadian dollars, which is a million dollars in today's money, in one single evening. Well, that's uh, pushing the boat up. And it seems, Mikey, in many ways, some things haven't changed, because I got a great tweet from a guy who's actually visited Dawson City, and he was telling us about a sour toe cocktail. What? Now, this is in Downtown Hotel's Sourdough Saloon in Dawson City. 
and you get a sour toe in your cocktail. The story goes there were these bootlegging brothers back in the Gold Rush days and they get frostbitten and both of them lose half their toes. But as a memento, they keep one of the toes and they put it in moonshine to preserve it. As you would. That moonshine gets left behind a bar and rediscovered in 1973 and the Sour Toe Cocktail Club is born. Okay, I've had my fair share of cocktails in my life, but I've never had a sour toe cocktail, so what's in it, mate? All right, the deal is, first you've got to pay for your shot of choice, anything you like, and then an extra eight Canadian dollars, and you get served by a toe captain. Now, these are the guys in the bar who know the rules, and what they do is literally drop a preserved toe into your drink for you to sip on. <laughs> yeah, so these are the rules, okay? You must let the toe hit your lips, Ugh. but no biting, chewing, or putting the toe in your mouth is allowed. Not a problem. <laughs> Swallowing the toe yeah. gets you a fine of $2,000. Once again, not a problem. But if you finish your drink and return the toe, you get to be a member of the Sour Toe Cocktail Club for the rest of your life. Yeah, I might give that one a pass. But here's the strange thing, mate. I'm going to stay in Dawson City as well, but you're the one talking booze, and I'm going to talk archaeology. <laughs> okay. Okay, it's 1978, and Dawson City was getting a new recreation centre. Now, the bulldozers had broken ground, and when they did, they came across hundreds of reels of aged nitrate film. Mm. Some 533, obviously silent films, that were, they were discovered. And these films have been shot in the years between 1910 and 1930, and they've wow. been wonderfully preserved. Because they were tearing up an ice rink, mm -hmm. but in 1929, that ice rink was built over a swimming pool. Right. So the pool was drained, it was filled with landfill, and these films were just part of, part the, of the just part of the landfill. And as such, they were away from the light, they were underground, it was cold, and they were beautifully preserved. <sighs> now, enter a guy called Bill Morrison. Mm. He's a documentary maker. In 2016, he pieced together this incredible archival footage and gave us Dawson City frozen time. And you can still see this on YouTube. I really recommend you go and check it out. Mm -hmm. Now, Morrison said he'd first heard the story of the reels of this old film as an art student back in the 80s. But he said it was almost like an archivist folk tale. Yeah. But then he finds them. But he doesn't just use these films. He also manages to come across 200 glass plate negatives from the late 19th century mm. from the famous Yukon photographer, a guy called Eric Hogg. A lot of those <sighs> shots you know of the gold rush. Yes, Hogg. Those classic marching through the snow shots. Yeah, but guess where he found them? They found these 200 plates when someone was doing renovation in the 1950s and they were stuck in between the walls as isolation. <sighs> now, now, the films he discovered were not just reels that were shot in Dawson City, but also films that have just arrived there to entertain the prospectors. Mm. And from this, Morrison also tells some really interesting tales about show business in Dawson City. But my favourite one, is there's a whole bunch of them, my favourite one involves a kid. Mm-hmm. A young boy who around the turn of the century went up there with his father. The kid's name was Sid Gorman. Mm. His dad was a prospector and a bit of an oh, entrepreneur, shall we say. Mm. And Sid was working as Dawson's paper boy. Right. Now, he would later tell the story, and it may be apocryphal, but he tells the story that a local shopkeeper offered him $50 for his last newspaper. 
which a massive profit. Right. But then the shopkeeper went to went back to his shop, and he would charge illiterate miners and prospectors to come in while he read out the paper aloud. Ah. So this Sid Gorman, he and his dad realised there's more money to be made in Dawson City and the Klondike by being a theatrical entrepreneur. Mm. They start putting on boxing tournaments, boxing displays, and vaudeville shows. And that actually sets them up in the vaudeville business, which they take back to California, when they also start moving into cinemas. And in 1926, Sid Gorman opens Gorman's Chinese Theatre, probably the most famous cinema in the world. Which brings me to my other Yukon-related story. Go on. Okay, the most famous film set in the Yukon... It's probably Charlie Chaplin's yes, The Gold, Gold Rush. Rush. Mate, you have to remember, Chaplin shot that only 30 years after The Gold Rush. Mm. So it was still with an actual living memory. Mm. Now, he was inspired by a couple of things. One was the photos, photos like the ones we've mentioned by Eric Hogg. Yeah, people going up the Chilkoot Pass. Yes. The famous photo of all those pioneers yes. heading up that snow-covered mountain. Plus, he just read a book about the Donner Party and their disastrous trip in 1846. Now, for ah. those, yeah, you, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, the Donner Party, they're on the Oregon Trail. They took a shortcut through the Sierra Nevada. Yep. They get snowed in. Eventually, they're rescued four months later, but only 48 survive out of the original 87. And the 48 who survive, survive by eating, eating, the, re- eating yes. the rest. Yeah, great source for comedy. But, but Chaplin <laughs> had a brainwave. He thought, why not make a comedy about his tramp Braving snow and starvation in an optimistic tale set in the Yukon. Right. was actually filmed in the Sierra Nevada. And for two weeks, they had to recreate the shots of the prospectors struggling up Chilkoot Pass. Mm. Yeah, well, the prospectors, they were played by about 600 extras, mostly homeless people brought in by train from Sacramento. Mm. Yeah, okay. Here's where I've got to say a few things that people might disagree with. <laughs> Maybe he was a genius. Yes, yes, he was a genius. But Chaplin was not the most pleasant of human beings. In fact, production was difficult and made even worse by Chaplin's own, and let's be honest, criminal behaviour. Chaplin was having an affair with his co-star, Lita Gray. Right. She was under 16 and uh, pregnant with his child. Yeah. Okay, they married, but that didn't end well. But production gets shut down. Now, Lita was replaced with Georgia Hale. Look, as I said before, Chaplin was not the nicest guy. and This is often glossed over by film historians. Mm. Having said that, the Gold Rush is considered to be one of his finest films. Mm. It even won an Oscar nomination when it was re-released in 1942. Chaplin often said you know, it was the film he most wanted to be remembered for. Mm. It also made him over $2 million when it was wow. released. Now, it's remembered for three classic scenes, and they mostly centre on hunger and deprivation. There's one where in the eyes of a delirious fellow miner, a guy called Big Jim, Chaplin is transformed into a rather tasty-looking chicken. And of course, Mikey, that big Jim, that's based on our hero from our episode, Skookum Jim, because he was the big, super strong guy. I, I didn't know that. And then there's another famous scene where Chaplin cooks up and eats his boot with all the aplomb of a gourmet chef. Yes. But there is the most famous scene. It's probably the most famous Chaplin scene of all time, where he sticks two bread rolls on forks, tucks them under his chin, and does a cute little dance. Now, even if you're not a Chaplin fan, you probably might be aware of it from Johnny Depp doing it in that dreadful 90s rom-com Benny and June. Yes. Also to The Simpsons do a tribute to it where Grandpa Simpson does it. So yes, this Charlie Chaplin scene is a classic. In fact, Chaplin's scene is so much of a classic that when they're showing it in cinemas, they actually have to stop the film when it's over so the audience can give it a standing ovation. (laughs) And then they would often rewind it and show it over. Play it again. Again and again. Brilliant. Right. 
But here's the thing. Chaplin stole it. What? Yep. It was originally performed by Fatty Arbuckle, who Chaplin would have worked with, in the 1970 film The Rough House. And its invention is often credited to that short film's co-star, the wonderful Buster Keaton. In 1917? In 1917. In fact, there were rumours that went around that Keaton used to do the bread rolls on forks as a party trick to mock Chaplin's iconic tramp walk. Ah. And look, that may or may not be true, but the fact that the gag is stolen is just another thing about Chaplin that movie historians often just brush over. All right, well, that brings us to episode two when you got all explosive on us. And it turns out that Krakatoa isn't the only volcano in Indonesia we should have been talking about. Exactly, mate. And here's a strange starting point. And we are going to start with Krakatoa. And we're going to talk about art. Right. And we're going to talk about the, the definite link between Krakatoa and Edvard Munch's The Scream of Nature. The Scream, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah the famous The Scream painting. Look, look, there are four versions of this iconic work. There are two pastels and there are two that are paint. Yeah. The one we most know is the red sky one. Sure. And here's the thing. Even though it was painted 10 years after the explosion in Krakatoa, mm-hmm. remember how we said how it had massive effects even in the Northern Hemisphere? Yeah. Well, although painted a decade after the eruption of Krakatoa, there is a journal entry from Munch which is contemporaneous with the volcano's after effects in the Northern sky. Mm. So I'm going to quote directly from Munch here. I was walking along the road with two friends. The sun went down. I felt a gust of melancholy. Suddenly the sky turned blood red. Mm-hmm. I stopped, leaned against the railing, tired to death as the flaming skies hung like blood and sword over the black fjord of the city. My friends went on. I stood there trembling with anxiety and I felt a vast, infinite scream tear through nature. Wow, Monk wrote that himself. He wrote that himself. And uh, even though the painting is you know, done 10 years later, Monk was an expression. He's obviously got it in his mind. Exactly. And you know, let's face it, Monk is not a guy who's actually you know, doing portrait painting. So he's, he's painting from his mind. And let's not forget, too, the last time The Scream sold was in 2016, and that was for $120 million. So it's probably one of the most expensive modern paintings in the world. But I'm not done with painting. Mm. We've got to talk about Turner. Every, you're, you're a Brit. Every Brit loves Turner. I love Turner. Now, painters such as John Crome, Caspar David Frederick, and most famously Turner, they produced incredibly evocative landscapes with intense red sunsets Mm. in and after and around 1816. Hang on, 1816? That's decades before Krakatoa. Yes, mate. It's long before Krakatoa, but it's just after another eruption, the second Indonesian volcano I told you we needed to look at. This is an eruption so big, well... What it caused was something that's gone down in history as the year without summer. And this year without summer has a major effect on, on not just art, but, but with art, there are famous paintings like Frederick's Woman Before the Rising Sun mm-hmm. and the skies in Turner's famous landscapes, but there were other repercussions. It also has a rather gloomy effect on literature. Byron wrote his classic poem, The Darkness. I'm just mm-hmm. going to read you a few lines. I had a dream which was not a dream. The bright sun extinguished and the stars did wander, darkling in the eternal space. Mm. Mary Shelley gets started on her first draft of Frankenstein. Oh. And Byron's own physician, John William Polidori, he writes the gothic tale, The Vampire. Ah. So all these gloomy artistic endeavours, they're a result of the year without summer. Mm. And the year without summer is a result of the other volcano eruption I want to talk about, the 1815 eruption of Mount Tambora, an Indonesian volcano east of Java. Right. This is the largest ever recorded eruption. 
And I just want to say, first off the bat, its significance is far more devastating than a few gloomy poems and pictures. <laughs> yeah. It blew over 1,000 metres of rock off the top of Mount Tambor and created a crater 4.8 kilometres wide and hundreds of metres deep. Mm. The explosion, and this is where it gets pretty tragic, killed 11,000 people. Ooh. And the following tsunami, up to 60,000 more. It was actually far bigger and far more deadly than Krakatoa. Then you have the ongoing effects of the year without summer. See, what happened was global temperatures dropped by between 0.4 and 0.7 degrees. Mm. That causes famine all over the globe. They do know that the floods in Europe caused by the year without summer killed about 100,000 people. And the worst thing that happened is that the resultant climate change also was a major contributing factor to a particularly deadly strain of cholera, okay. which broke out of the Bay of Bombay ah. and is said to have killed millions of people. In fact, Mount Tambora is considered to be the worst environmental event in human history. All right, folks, there you go. That's the volcanoes and Mount Tambora, which is just east of Lombok and Bali, isn't it? Yeah, mate. And that brings us to our last episode, uh, episode three, which, of course, was the Flat Earthers. Yes, indeed. And also, too, having a bit of a dig at the Victorians and pseudoscience. Yes. So I've got a story here. It's, um, it's actually from the start of the 20th century, but it has its roots in Victorian pseudoscience. Mm-hmm. It's about an American art dealer, a guy called Horace Fletcher. Now, Horace Fletcher was a large man. Okay, he was a really fat guy. <laughs> okay. He was so fat that in 1900, he was actually refused life insurance. <laughs> But for some reason, he'd been reading about the great British Prime Minister, William Gladstone, Mm. a great Victorian figure, Mm. and he read that Gladstone had advised his own children, chew your food 32 times at least, so as to give each of your 32 teeth a chance at it. Okay. Armed with this thought and a bit of his own research, he lost over 40 pounds in what became known as the chewing diet. The chewing diet. Yes, mate. He markets it as the chewing diet, but also part of his marketing push is that he becomes known as the great masticator. Be careful. I know. In 1913, he puts out a book, Fletcherism, What It Is or How I Became Young at 60. Right. It breaks down into sort of five basic tenets. Mm -hmm. One, wait for a true earned appetite. Two, select from the food available, which appeals most to appetite and in the order called by appetite. I don't even know what that means. (laughs) Here you go. Three, get all the good taste there is in the food out of it in the mouth and swallow only when it practically swallows itself. Mm. Enjoy the good taste for all it's worth and do not allow any depressing or diverting thoughts to intrude upon the ceremony. Wait, take and enjoy as much as possible what appetite approves. Nature will do the rest. Mm. Now, he also says that you shouldn't be too happy or too angry when you're eating at (laughs) mealtime. Look, the guy was not a medical genius, but he was fantastic at promotion. He becomes a prolific lecturer, constantly touring and amassing a devoted following. The people that followed him, they were called members of the Choo Choo cult. (laughs) But it included people like Upton Sinclair, Henry James and even John D. Rockefeller. Now, I said at the start this guy was an entrepreneur. Mm Mm-hmm. His wealth and fame grew to a point where he was able to purchase a palazzo in Venice where he had both James and Mark Twain over as welcome guests. He was the Jenny Craig of his time, mate. A proto-Atkins. Mate, exactly a proto-Atkins. He names the diet and he gets rich off the diet. 
Then there are some other weird things he says as well. Like he has this weird thing where um, you should tell children to examine and smell their poo mm. from an early age as part of a healthy lifestyle. Healthy? Yeah, well, anyway. But here's the thing. You mentioned Atkins, right? Mm. Well, Fletch is a bit the same. It's a fad diet. In fact, by the time he dies in 1919, he's already discredited and dieters have moved on to the next thing. All right, folks, so there you go. Any questions, any comments, just drop us a line on all your social media. Same as usual, your Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whichever you prefer. That's right, and always the same handle, at the rest is hist. The rest is hist, and you'll find all that in the show notes. And whenever you're listening, don't forget to like, subscribe, comment. On whichever platform you happen to use, it's always great to get your feedback. Yeah, keep it all coming. We're having lots of fun out there, lots of extra stories. And maps. There's always more maps. (laughs) Right, which brings us to next week. And next week, Mikey, you're chronicling something close to every... Aussie Heart, the history of the invasive species. With a bit of Shakespeare on the side. Mm